This year's meeting plenary session included two important presentations by Austrian investigators, Michael Nance's stunning data set on zoledronic acid in breast cancer, and a landmark data set in non-small cell lung cancer presented by Dr. Robert Perker evaluating the anti-EGFR antibody cetuximab. Dr. Ed Kim reviewed this study and others in lung and head and neck cancer and began by describing the FLEX study of cetuximab in non-small cell. FLEX is the randomized phase 3 study that was anxiously awaited by everyone. This was the definitive study for cetuximab in non-small cell lung cancer in the first-line setting. It was a combination of cisplatin and venerelbine with the addition of cetuximab versus cisplatin and venerelbine alone. And as you know, this data was based on the Lucas study, which was the randomized phase 2 data that, again, some people thought looked okay, but I think we're fairly surprised that this study turned out the way it did based on that data. The overall endpoint was survival, and so that's the one we like. The sample size was over 1,100 patients, so it was a large study, very robust. Patients did have to have EGFR-expressing tumors, and the definition for EGFR expression via immunohistochemistry has changed over time. In this study, they required only one cell to be positive. So that was quite a few. It was greater than 85% of the tumors that they screened. My own personal sense is is that if they just looked at other tissue specimens, they'd probably find these positive because most patients are positive. And the breakdown was very standard, as we would see with stage 3B and 4, predominantly 4. The adenocarcinomas between 45 and 50%, and squamuses between 30 and 35%. There wasn't any different smoking status. Never smokers were about 20%, and mostly Caucasians in this study. Asians were about 10%. Can you just kind of summarize the bottom line of what they found? The bottom line was that they did see a statistical survival improvement, 11.3 months versus 10.1 months. One-year survival was 47 versus 42%. It was well-tolerated from a standpoint of toxicity. Again, we expect the usual toxicities of hypomagnesemia, infusion reactions, and acne-like rash. So this is now the second positive study in combination chemotherapy with a biologic agent in the first-line setting of non-small cell lung cancer. Any way to make sort of an indirect comparison in terms of what they saw compared to what's been seen with bevacizumab? As you know, Neil, I really don't like making cross-trial comparisons as we get into dangerous times. These were different patient populations. When we think of bevacizumab, we think of excluding the squamous cell carcinomas. We do exclude people who have hemoptysis. We focus only on the adenocarcinomas or the non-squamous subset, and there was no biomarker required for study entry. The exclusions are basically because of safety reasons. With cetuximab, this is a more inclusive group, a more broad look at the patient population. Some people will say it was more biomarker-focused, but again, I don't think IHC is a great screening method to see whether someone gains benefit from cetuximab. And so, when you compare the relative numbers, again, the benefit comes down to five weeks versus eight weeks, essentially, when you compare the two studies. I know people will comment on the cost and all these other aspects, and I think we have to be sympathetic to that. But as a practicing clinician, I truly believe that having more choices is obviously beneficial, and this hopefully will give us an additional choice for patients in first-line non-small cell lung cancer. Now, they didn't really see a benefit in terms of progression-free survival. 
Yeah, and that debate will continue to go back and forth. Some people truly believe that progression-free survival is a good indicator of overall survival, and there was actually a couple of abstracts at ASCO which looked at progression-free survival as a okay predictor for overall survival. But sort of as we always say, survival trumps all. And so although we didn't see that hint in progression-free survival, overall survival was better. That was the primary endpoint. I truly believe, and I will say it again and again, if we're designing studies and we have a targeted endpoint and we hit the endpoint that we designed and we targeted, then we should be satisfied that the trial was positive. If we're going to look at a positive study and then throw darts at it afterwards, then we really need to rethink how we want to design studies and what the bar should be for calling something positive. Tom Lynch did a really great discussion of this paper. And one of the things, of course, is the issue, what does it mean right now in terms of treating patients? And he went through different patient subsets. I'm curious how you would respond to the same issues. We can start out with patients who theoretically would be eligible for BEV, who meet the criteria. Would you see presenting the option of cetuximab, assuming you can get it paid for, of course, or stick with BEV? I think for a patient who is eligible for bevacizumab and also eligible for cetuximab, we have to present both choices. As you know, one of the big things that will hang up doctors with cetuximab will depend on what combination or if any combination is approved with cetuximab. I can tell you if cisplatin and venerelbine is the only choice that is approved with cetuximab, then there aren't going to be a lot of people jumping to use that regimen in first line, especially in the U.S. It's a little bit more difficult and tedious to use that regimen. You need a long line because venerelbine is a vesicant. And so there will be some hesitation there. And I would say from a convenience standpoint, probably bevacizumab is your choice. All things being equal, I think you want to present both sides. And probably when you consider the side effects head-to-head, people might lean a bit more towards cetuximab as far as side effects. But again, they both have their pros and cons. We're actually leading a SWOG study, which is combining the quadruplet, carboplatin, paclitaxel, bevacizumab, and cetuximab. So maybe that will be the choice in the future. We are planning a large phase three based on some phase two data that I'll report this fall. What about Bev ineligible, particularly squamous cell? Yeah, I think the squamous cells have become almost like the small cells, where they're being neglected a bit. We've seen data with pemetrexid, where it doesn't work very well with squamous cells and works very well with adenocarcinomas. We've seen now safety issues with squamous cells and these VEGF inhibitors, especially bevacizumab, where they're not going to get an opportunity. I think now, because they are a minority, we now have something to offer them other than standard doublet chemotherapy, and that includes cetuximab. What about using chemo other than cis-venerelbine? Well, I'm a big believer that taxanes are very good drugs, especially in the broad subsets of non-small cell lung cancer. We have not seen any subsets of histology where they work better or worse. So I think any type of platinum taxane regimen is very reasonable with cetuximab or bevacizumab. But to me, really, there's not any platinum doublet up front that should be excluded from the use of either of these drugs. Okay, I'd like to get your take on some of the oral presentations that were given in the regular session. I wanted to ask you about a paper looking at serafinib in non-small cell presented by Joan Schiller. So Joan Schiller presented some very interesting data with serafinib, and 
everybody was pretty interested to see how the single agent serafinib would do because previous studies had suggested that there wasn't any response rates in heavily pretreated patients. We learned earlier this year that the combination of serafinib with chemotherapy did not yield a survival benefit. In fact, it looked like it was even somewhat detrimental in one of the arms. And so we wanted to see where single agent therapy was. And I really felt that because the frontline study was negative, there was a lot of pressure that serafinib was not a good drug for lung cancer. And I kept having to sort of remind people that let's not forget about drugs like gefitinib or erlotinib, which did not work with chemotherapy up front, but worked just fine as single agents. And again, whether we shrink tumors or keep them the same, it's all the same to me. We just don't want any growth. So the fact that there's not a response rate never really bothered me too much about serafinib. We would, of course, like that. Patients are happier with response rates. But from a clinical standpoint, you tell me that the tumor is going to stay the same for the next six months. I'm very happy about that. They did a very nice design, which was a randomized discontinuation design. It, again, allows for early assessment on patients, whether they have stable disease on study drug or placebo, and then they allows patients to go off before randomization if anything bad happens to them. Now, the objective, again, of this study was to determine the percent of patients on serafinib maintaining stable disease or response two months after randomization as compared to placebo. She had 83 patients in which she analyzed at the ASCO meeting. As far as the stable and responding disease, two months after randomization in placebo, there were 19%. In serafinib, there were 47%. And then the progression-free survival she presented, again, there are still patients that they are analyzing, had a 3.6-month progression-free survival for serafinib and a two-month progression-free survival for placebo. And that translated, again, into an early look at survival, which was 11.9 months for serafinib and nine months for placebo. What can we take away from this data? I think we need to wait and see as far as how the data matures, but I think it certainly gives comfort to many people that this is not a drug that is inactive in non-small cell lung cancer and that these trials should continue, especially with monotherapy or in the second line or beyond setting. Certainly the first line data was not that encouraging, but again, it's not the first drug to fail with chemotherapy in the first line setting. So what was your take overall from this paper to you? Did it suggest there was some activity there? I think there is activity with serafinib, and I hope it will become a drug that we can use in non-small cell lung cancer as another oral alternative in salvage therapy. And I think I would welcome any of these oral drugs that have lower side effects, especially for our patients. What about sunitinib? What do we know about that in this situation? Well, sunitinib is still being tested. There has been some data presented by Mark Szynski and others that there is some activity, but I'm not sensing a movement toward registration with this drug at this time. I feel that they are still trying to figure out where's the best setting with this type of drug, especially with some of the other VEGF-rich tumors that are out there. Let's talk a little bit about the paper that discussed an insulin growth factor antibody CP751 used with paclitaxel carbo and squamous cell. Yeah, so our own Dr. Carp leads this trial nationally. It is a study of carboplatin, paclitaxel, and CP751871. That is an insulin-like growth factor receptor antibody. This study has undergone several iterations where it started in all comers 
and then they noticed that there was a higher response rate in squamous cell carcinomas, and therefore it has since been amended to include only squamous cell carcinomas at this time. Now, insulin-like growth factor receptor is a very hot area right now. I can tell you, Neil, several years ago when I was exploring this area in therapeutics, there just weren't many drugs out there. Actually, I've been collaborating with some of our basic scientists, namely Ho Young Lee, who has a rich program in IGF signaling pathways. We've tried to study other agents, including this pathway, through several models. She's the one who directs all the basic science aspects. I think this drug class in general is very promising. There are several drugs out there that have a chance, I believe, to make it all the way. This is one of them where they're seeing an extremely robust efficacy in these squamous patients. What he showed at ASCO this year was a 54% response rate when adding the IGF drug to paclitaxel and carboplatin, and that was versus a 41% response rate in the general population. And then they also showed some progression-free survival data. Now, again, there was a trend in median progression-free survival of 5.6 versus 4.3 months in the squamous cell population. I think we've all wanted more data, and they're showing different doses and how those responses may occur. They have finally shown some progression-free survival. I think everybody's excited about this study and this drug, and that's why we all want more data to see some survival numbers, etc., but it's just been very slow. What about side effects and toxicity? Well, you are going to run into hyperglycemia, and I've seen this happen. This has been the bane of this class's existence for quite some time, and that's why many of these drugs were abandoned in the past, because they couldn't control this side effect. In this study, there was some hyperglycemia, but it has been pretty well controlled, and so that is the number one problem you see. What's your take on Greg Riley's paper looking at the frequency and spectrum of KRAS mutations, a hot topic, particularly in colon cancer, in never smokers with lung adenocarcinoma? So I thought the study that Dr. Riley presented was extremely interesting. It was very provocative in that he looked at never smokers, former smokers, and current smokers, and had pretty large groupings of each. He looked at frequencies of KRAS mutations, and he showed that, again, 15% of never smokers and 22% of former and 29% of current smokers were also present. He was able to also relate this to other factors, but again, these are not rare mutations. And I think what we're trying to learn is what is their relevance in non-small cell lung cancer. Everybody associated RAS to be with smokers and finding them in 15% of never smokers is quite astonishing. We don't know if they have any predictive value whatsoever. We do know that having a KRAS mutation is prognostic, that you'll probably do worse if you have one of these things. And so I think just finding them, again, adds to our pool of knowledge that they do exist. We should not start to think of mutual exclusivity between EGFR mutations and KRAS mutations, and somehow they're going to fit together in a big puzzle that we'll be able to figure out and then eventually use in our practice to help determine which patients benefit from which drugs more often. We were talking about cetuximab before. Do you think that that's ready to have KRAS considered in terms of whether it's utilized in non-small cell? Clearly, in colon cancer, that's you know, quickly becoming standard. 
I thought the colon data with KRAS mutation, and again, finding it in 40% of patients and clearly showing in large studies, large randomized studies, that there was a significant difference in how patients did mandated KRAS mutation testing should occur in all colon cancer patients at this time. And again, how that is looked at, I find it extremely ironic, more so from the fact that in colon cancer with cetuximab, there has been a demand for tissue in that you're supposed to turn in tissue to see if you're EGFR positive. And the ironic thing is we've been looking at the wrong biomarker for all these years. It's not whether EGFR makes you a better candidate for cetuximab. It actually is KRAS mutation making you a worse candidate. So we were almost there. For lung cancer, I think we have to throw an air of caution. We don't know and we don't have the data, like our colon cancer colleagues, that KRAS mutation is anything specific to a biologic agent such as cetuximab. In fact, people will have a hard time quoting data even with traditional chemotherapy. When we looked at KRAS mutation in the interest study, which was what my colleague Jean-Yves Douillard presented at ASCO, we had over 40 patients with KRAS mutations, half treated with gefitinib and half treated with docetaxel. The gefitinib arm had a 0% response rate, and the docetaxel arm had a 4% response rate. But when you looked at their median survivals, and again, this was a subset, it was only 50 patients, it showed that certainly there was no worsening of survival with the EGFR-TKI, and in fact, the trend was more positive than chemotherapy. So until we get more data from prospective randomized studies, I think KRAS mutation still remains an important prognostic indicator. We just don't know how predictive it is with regards to therapy. I'm curious about your thoughts about Mark Sosinski's paper looking at the incorporation of BEV and erlotinib with induction and concurrent chemo and radiation therapy in stage 3, not small cell. So Sosinski and colleagues presented some data that included incorporating bevacizumab and erlotinib with concurrent carboplatin and paclitaxel as induction therapy and then follow that with thoracic radiotherapy. So the schema was to give two cycles of induction with the two different regimens, and then they looked at giving concurrent chemoradiation with carboplatin and paclitaxel. And then they started looking at different escalating doses of erlotinib ahead of time and then during thoracic radiotherapy. So it was a pretty complex design in which they were looking at. Again, they wanted to be mindful of any safety issues, and so I think that was why they wanted to look at that. The phase one portion where they looked at the different doses with erlotinib, obviously the objectives were safety and toxicity, and then the phase two, they obviously wanted to look at progression-free survival and toxicity and look at overall feasibility of giving consolidation bevacizumab and erlotinib after the combined modality therapy was done. They picked patients who were stage 3A or 3B. Those were appropriate for patients who needed concurrent therapy but were not eligible for surgery. They did exclude any palpable supracovicular adenopathy, so it wasn't all of the 3Bs per se. They did allow squamous histology if there was no evidence of vascular invasion. And so they enrolled these patients. Again, there were 20 of them at the time of the poster. They looked at various degrees of induction response and toxicities, as well as different toxicities with the chemoradiotherapy. 
And what they saw was is that they did see a lot of PRs, again, after induction, 40%, and then after concurrent, 68%. Mind you, there were only 20 of these and 19 who had gone through the concurrent. They did look at the squamous cells, and again, nine of these 20 had squamous histology. There was one grade 3 pulmonary hemorrhage that occurred while concurrent therapy was being done. There was a grade 5 pulmonary hemorrhage two months following three cycles of consolidation therapy. So again, this was a very early look at the PFS, and it was a little too early to say that. They felt that the chemotherapy with bevacizumab was well-tolerated, and that the concurrent therapy, again, was acceptable. There was significant esophageal toxicity, and that their consolidation therapy of erlotinib and bevacizumab following induction and concurrent was not very feasible. So again, I think we have to lay caution that we must be very cautious about combining these biological agents. When you start bringing radiation in, we have to be mindful that we are adding drugs now to radiotherapy. And they used 74 grays of radiotherapy here. That is the main toxicity we're going to see. And anything we add into this mix is going to be more toxic. This is not like the metastatic setting where we have some room to wiggle. So until we find which drugs and which doses are the optimal ones for combination, as well as seeing in patients themselves who may be more sensitive to the side effects of radiation. And this is a side we don't talk about too much, who is going to have higher toxicities and why, that would be a very important question. And I think as we start stacking these drugs on, we're going to run into issues like this where we're not going to be able to get them into folks. We were talking before about exclusion criteria to use BEV, and relevant to that, there's an interesting poster presented on the issue of BEV in people with brain mets. Okay, so what Wally Ackerley presented at ASCO was a nice summary of patients who were treated with bevacizumab across several studies, and those included Atlas and Passport, and it was really to see what we all kind of suspect. Do patients with brain metastases have more side effects or more bleeding episodes than those who have no brain metastases? Now, Again, they looked at this data. They did report that there was one symptomatic CNS hemorrhage, grade 2, that was on ATLAS that occurred during post-progression therapy. They reported five patients, again, who had grade 3 to 5 CNS events in Passport. Again, these did not seem too related to the drug. There were two patients reported who had grade 3 to 5 non-hemorrhagic CNS events, and those were both syncope or mental status changes and there was one grade 5 pulmonary hemorrhage in ATLAS. So to sum it up, and I'm hopeful that we can incorporate this data into the label of how we use bevacizumab, is that ATLAS and Passport, again, this sort of look early showed that you can treat patients with bevacizumab who have had previously treated brain metastasis in non-small cell lung cancer. Clearly, this data will begin to grow as we get more patients, Personally, if I were told that this was acceptable, I would do it right away in my patients. Because right now there is a restriction on brain metastases, I have not incorporated that into my daily practice. But I can tell you, Neil, that we're not screening for brain metastases every cycle, and patients certainly can develop this. So I think many of us have unknowingly treated brain metastases in patients more than we probably know. But I think personally, it's a very safe thing to do in a treated brain metastasis. But again, I'll wait for the studies to mature a little bit more. Okay, let's talk a little bit about some of the head and neck papers. And 
first some of the oral presentations, the first looking at concomitant chemo radiation therapy versus neoadjuvant chemo. Yeah, so this was the Pacanella study, and this was a very nice study. I think it felt like a vindication to those folks who believe in neoadjuvant chemotherapy. This was a nice study that was looking at radiologic complete response at the end of concurrent. I feel it's very difficult to try and find good endpoints in studies like this, especially in a phase two setting. And the design of this was is that patients with stage 3-4 locally advanced head and neck cancer were randomized to receive TPF induction, that's taxotere platinum 5-FU, and the doses of that were 75 per meter squared of docetaxel, 80 per meter squared of cisplatin, and 800 per meter squared of 5-FU given over a 96-hour continuum infusion. That is a little bit different than what has been reported in some of the TPF studies, but very similar. With the concurrent chemo-XRT portion, cisplatin at 20 per meter squared was given on days 1 through 4, and 5-FU was given, again, as a 96-hour continuous infusion at 800 per meter squared. And this was done on weeks 1 and week 6 during the radiotherapy. They allowed up to three cycles of induction therapy in that arm before going into conventional chemo-RT. So what they were able to show was that three cycles of TPF induction were feasible, and it did not compromise the delivery of subsequent chemoradiotherapy, and this, again, has been shown in other studies. There was also a significantly reduced need for salvage neck surgery for patients with residual disease, and this was 34 versus 10.8%. So again, doing the induction therapy really changed the outcome of some patients and post-concurrent therapy. And again, the difference in the complete response rate was in favor of TPF induction therapy. Again, this was 28.8%. And so, again, I think it validates the question that we're all having, does induction really work in head and neck? I think this is more phase two data that's randomized that feeds the fire that there is a strong role for induction therapy. And you're looking at a guy, Neil, who is not traditionally an induction guy. So again, I believe that radiotherapy is a very important therapy. It needs to be done. We are selective of who we look at to give induction therapy to, generally the higher bulk masses or bilateral disease. But I think studies like this, again, tell us that larger phase three data are needed but it certainly looks encouraging that induction could have a significant impact on how we manage our head and neck cancer patients. What about the paper looking at cetuximab added to docetaxel, cisplatin, 5-FU, and induction therapy? So this was an interesting study presented by Tischler and the group at Dana-Farber from Boston, and it looked at adding cetuximab to the TPF regimen. So you knew this was coming TPF has been established as if you're going to use induction, that's the induction regimen you should use, and now we're adding cetuximab. Cetuximab is clearly an active drug in head and neck cancer being approved in both the locally advanced as well as the platinum failure situation, soon to be probably added in the first-line recurrent metastatic situation with chemotherapy based on the extreme data. This was a phase one study. They again wanted to dose escalate and see how the tolerance was. They did cetuximab at 400 per meter squared and then 250 weekly, cisplatin at 100 per meter squared, and docetaxel at 75 per meter squared. 5-FU was given at different doses of escalation from 700 to 1,000, and again, over a day one through four period. 
So what they were able to show was that cetuximab could be added safely to the induction chemotherapy regimen of TPF and that the MTD for the 5-FU was 850 milligram per meter squared. We knew it would be difficult getting 1,000 in there, and so I think it was appropriate to dose escalate that aspect. People have actually raised questions of whether the F is really needed, the 5-FU, and Previously, many people were using cisplatin and docetaxel as an induction regimen. Of course, the control arm in the TPF studies were with platinum and 5-FU. And so it doesn't answer that question. And in fact, some of us wonder after seeing a study like this, which again showed very good activity with the four drugs, that are we going to see something where we can skip the 5-FU and in fact use cisplatin, docetaxel, and cetuximab, or what we're doing at MD Anderson, which is carboplatin, paclitaxel, and cetuximab. So there is some question about the 5-FU and its overall role, but right now that is what's approved, and that is generally what we use for induction. I think the addition of cetuximab is certainly the right direction. I was going to ask you about a couple of papers in thyroid cancer. The first is a phase two study that looks at vandetinib, this is actually in medullary. So Dr. Haddad presented some data on vandetinib in medullary thyroid cancer. And this is the drug AZD6474. It has been tested in lung and is currently awaiting some very important data in second-line lung in combination with docetaxel but originally got its fame because it showed some early responses in medullary thyroid. And being a head and neck doctor, and we deal with so many of these sort of small tumors that don't get a lot of press time, adenoid cystics, with salivary gland tumors, Merkel cells, aggressive squamous of the skin. It's nice to see that a tumor like medullary thyroid finally had a drug that may be appropriate. And so this is a combination TKI of VEGF and EGFR signaling. It is an oral drug, so it's easy to take. And they looked at, in a formal way, to study 100 milligrams per day of vandetinib in these patients. And what they were able to show was is that there is clinical activity in metastatic hereditary medullary thyroid cancer. They saw confirmed partial responses in 16% of patients and then stable disease in greater than 24 weeks in in 52%. So clearly there was some activity going on. These adverse events were mostly rash and diarrhea were pretty well controlled. Serum levels of calcitonin and CEA also showed a decrease, but again, a better indicator is how we see the tumor behaving itself. And so there is a international randomized placebo-controlled trial looking at vandetinib in these patients, and that's ongoing, and we hope that it's positive because it'll give these patients who really have no option for therapy something to be treated with. It looks like, you know, have sort of this waterfall plot there that where even though you get a little bit of a hint beyond just the resist, and it looks like most of the patients had some tumor shrinkage. Yeah, these waterfall plots are nice to look at because it gives us an indication. You know, these criteria for response and progression are set up, I believe, pretty arbitrarily. Maybe more that how you measure them is arbitrarily, but this gives you an idea of where most patients fall. And again, most of these folks had reduction in the size of their tumor. That's nice and reassuring to see. We'd hate to see the opposite occur. But again, I think it just adds to what we believe is is that there's activity. Hopefully now that will translate into survival in the larger phase three study. Now, there are also a couple of phase two studies looking at serafinib in advanced thyroid cancer. Can you comment on that? 
So there were some additional studies in metastatic thyroid cancer. This was serafinib. This was, again, not in the type that is medullary, but again, these are in the unresectable thyroid carcinomas. These patients have papillary or follicular cell subtypes for the most part. Serafinib, again, is a drug that targets VEGFR, BRAF. It has a lot of small little downstream signaling, and so perhaps being an anti-angiogenesis class drug may have activity in thyroid cancers. There have been other drugs that have been looked at. The serafinib was 400 milligrams PO twice daily for these patients. So 42 patients were enrolled and 31 were evaluable, and what they reported was a partial response rate of 24% and stable disease of 48%. And so 72% overall disease control, and the waterfall plot looks extremely promising when you look at patients and how they were doing. Again, as far as best response in these advanced thyroid cancer patients, you see that there is some activity with serafinib with most of these tumors going south rather than north. And so there is some activity. It's certainly something that is promising. And anything we can get for thyroid, again, I think reiterates that we would love to have choices in all of our tumor types, but certainly in something like thyroid cancer where, again, we have very few modalities to offer after surgery, radiation, and obviously some radioactive iodine. In this other study presented by Dr. Ahmed from the United Kingdom, they looked at papillary thyroid cancers as well as medullary thyroid cancers, and they treated these patients with serafinib, and they wanted to see if they could determine what the clinical activity and the safety was in these patients who were considered unsuitable for treatment with radioactive iodine. So they enrolled 33 patients. The primary endpoint was overall response rate following six months of the study drug. What they reported at ASCO was accruing 24 patients, and they did see some toxicity in these folks. 17 patients required a dose reduction due to toxicity, one where they were able to reescalate, and 15 or 53% of the patients required a dose interruption due to the toxicity. So their conclusions were that you know, serafinib, again, is safely tolerated, again, with some dose reductions in patients with advanced or metastatic medullary and differentiated thyroid cancer. Again, this is very preliminarily done, and again, many of these patients required a dose reduction, but they tried to look at different histologic subtypes in this patient population. So although it's probably not as clean as the study we just described, again, it demonstrates that there's possible activity in patients, again, with these advanced or metastatic thyroid cancers.